0: And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. This week is an episode that so many people need to hear. My guest has served the United States Army for 24 years, with the majority of that time as a Green Beret. He's seen his share of war with multiple combat deployments. But this guest trauma started way back in childhood, where he was the victim of abuse for almost a decade, even driving him to attempt suicide at the age of twelve. My guest moved on to college in the army thinking it would give his life purpose, only finding that he could not completely shake the demons or images from his past. There were more suicide attempts and more silent suffering, until he broke free from the past so that he could concentrate on the present and in his future with his wife and children. He's undergone some incredible treatments that have given him a completely new look at life. And this week, he's sharing his story of trauma to triumph. It's my great honor to introduce you to Trevor Beeman. What's up, my friend?
1: Hey, how are you doing today? I'm really excited to be here to share, all, you know, the experiences of what I've been through. And, you know, it's it, the more people I can reach about the story that I have is, is really, goal that I have. And it's really something that means a lot to me.
0: Well, I got to tell you, you know, I I, want to start off kind of light, but I've heard from people that know both you and I that you were kind of the Michael Jordan of trauma. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) after hearing your story, after reading about you, now there is a new book, The Invisible Machine that has your story in it. There's so much about you. And there's so much to go over in this podcast that mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to get into this story. So let's start like we always do, way back in childhood. Let's talk about how you came up, how that stepfather came to be, and what happened behind all of this that kind of started this trauma ball rolling.
1: So uh, I was born in, uh, just outside of South Bend, and my parents got divorced uh, when I was around one years old and my mom had uh, moved into the projects in South Bend and trying to be a single mother kind of thing. And she had met uh, my stepfather when I was young and he had continuously asked her to marry him. And throughout that period of time, until I was about seven years old, like she had, had dated a few people that had brought some violence in the house and almost like an attempted murder on my my mom's life. And I think that kind of made her want to be with someone that was less aggressive. And I think that's how she got into finally accepting um, my stepfather's uh, proposal for marriage that ended up moving us uh, to Glenview, which is just a suburb right, right outside of Chicago. But we lived in a really poor area there and you know like a two-bedroom apartment one bathroom and like the you know it's the typical brown brick apartment building um which is just not um what i was really living in south bend so that's kind of like how my mom had got away um, from my father and there's a lot of story to that that it's just a lot of confusion and lies and things over time that we my brother kind of would find out and discover as we grew up and so that's how we kind of moved to glenview and my mom got married there and so i was about in third grade when we finally started to settle down
0: in the beginning of this does this bring you any kind of peace any kind of calm to the house any kind of structure to the house Anything like that when this first began? Because it's horrific what happens later on.
1: It seemed very calm, right? So he was actually in the minister, Monastery. he was going to be a priest in South Bend and he finally left that. So there was a lot of uh, going to church and a lot more family outings um, that was there than, than what I was used to in South Bend. So it was a very, I don't don't want to say it was too much structured, but it was more like a family dynamic than I had in the past. And he was very involved in the community. Like he's the guy that dressed up like a clown at kids' birthdays and had that kind of aura and, and, and generosity and giving to the poor and all those type of things and then as you know we talk about like as he's like one person during the day and then you know it turns into this monster at night
0: kind of interesting that you use the kind of comparison of someone who dresses up as a clown because as we all know there was a someone who dressed up as a clown and was a serial killer and mm-hmm. i think i mean this is the best way to get into this it's a very tough subject so i want to warn everybody that we're about to get into it, but let's talk about what, what happened with him for almost a decade.
1: So these encounters, we'll just say it uh, to make it simple is, is it, it, it started very in the terms of today, very vanilla, very like just touching and, and slowly moving around my body. And then as the, as time went on, it got more and more aggressive. Things of like penetration and things like that kind of are happening. Um, but that is over time, as it as it becomes just a very, I don't know, it's like playful kind of just touching of like my body and and things like that. Then it turns to like more my hands on his body and things like that, and it's. The beginning part is, is very enjoyable for me and it, it really makes me, I want this to happen over again, but then over time, it, the duration of the encounters are getting, get longer and longer. My body starts to have showing effects on like my genitalia and like my, everything is raw and I can like feel it throughout the day. And like, these are things that are just like, ongoing remembering of what's happening at home at night. Um, And so then it just, it it gradually gets worse and worse um, until um, I'm 16 years old.
0: Does your mom have any idea about what's going on? Do you make any attempt to tell her? Do you make any attempt to tell anyone in your life?
1: No. um, I was so afraid that I was going to break up this family. I was afraid of, hurting my mom as that she found someone that she could finally be have it like have her two boys be comfortable and living a life that was better than what we had before and so i was afraid that that would like be i would remove it all
0: so was any of this going on with your brother at the same time or do you know if that happened
1: Uh, my my brother hasn't ever said that anything ever happened to him
0: and he knows what happened to you though i mean there's a yeah. lot of people you make ted talks you you do a lot of stuff about it and yeah. and he knows yeah. about it so at at what point do people yeah. learn about it because i know as we get further on that you you start to figure out that maybe your stepfather is doing this to other kids you yeah. make an outcry Um, Is there anyone that knows what's going on? Are you just suffering in silence and just kind of, you know, I guess putting all this away to build up for a future time?
1: A long time ago, I used to say that when I got to school, I would put all of the things that were happening at home into my locker and I would lock it up in there. And then I would live my day and then I would take it all out and put it back inside me when I would take my stuff out of my locker to go home. And so I, I learned to really compartmentalize what was happening at a super young age. Um, and it and the the contributes a lot to struggling in school and getting bad grades. And I, I know I must have been a really hard teenager to deal with. There's that kind of what I kind of used for a long time. It was just like bad things happen. And I compartmentalize it and put it away. And I just don't ever face it really In my house, I was really shown like stonewalling is the way that we deal with problems. And we never really talked about it. But to get to your question about like, how did this all come about? So my mom was an ER nurse, and we'll get into why this like makes me had a lot of questions after my kids were born. Because like, I see if my kids don't sleep okay, like they're not okay the next day. And so for this to be happening for me for so long, makes me feel like my mom just wasn't present or maybe she just had so many things going on in her own life that she couldn't see us, which absolutely breaks my heart. But there, when I was 16, my mom had seen me and it's in, I'm in the same bathroom where I tried to kill myself where I'd taken heart control pills and slipped my wrist. And she asked me, she's like, is your stepfather fucking you? And I was like, you finally asked me the right question. And my mom left. Um, it took me and we, I kind of ex- loaded, unloaded everything on her in a few hours. And then we went straight to the police station and I told the police officers exactly what was going on and how long it had been going on for. And they went directly to the house and arrested him. And that night he signed a full confession to everything he had done to me. And then it was in and out of court for about two years. And then when I was 18, I stood on the stand and said all the things that he had done to me, and he went to jail for eight years.
0: Okay, there's so many questions that come from that. Let's start with the first one. Let's start with the first one with your mom. I have to know, and I think a lot of people would want to know too, one, she's an ER nurse. She's she's trained in medicine. She knows kind of what to look for, not only as a mom, but as a medical personnel. Um, she obviously caught on at the age of 16, But do you ever look back on this and blame her for it happening?
1: Hmm, I try to tell myself I was better than her, that I could, I hit it better than anything. Um, But I wouldn't say that I blame it any on her at all. I just don't see how you can't notice things are not right. It's something that I've tried to reach out and get an answer to and it's not much as, um, came from those type of questions.
0: And so you've asked her these questions. How does that happen?
1: Yeah. Um, and, oh, not to get too deep in our like family issues, but like, it's basically like that was a long time ago. And those are things that I she has to deal with. And almost to a way that, um, I don't deserve those answers kind of thing. And so I really haven't talked to my mom probably now in eight years or so, because of a lot of the questions after my kids were born that I had asked about my childhood and what things that happened with my father and when I was growing up and what, how I was as a child. And could you not notice that these things were going on with me because I see them in my own children. And there was not much of a uh, response to that.
0: Does she ever apologize to you?
1: Yeah. She's, I mean, she's, I, she did the best that she could
0: that's the just answer that doing. she gave you <laughs> yeah, yeah okay
1: um and for for the things that i've done and stuff like that it makes it just hard to hear that and i don't um, because i see how my wife acts with her our children and i see how hard she fights for us and fights for other kids that are worth her job and i'm like And I just don't know how you're that oblivious to what's happening.
0: So do you think with all the treatments, with everything done, kind of a final question on your mom, one, have you forgiven her? And two, do you think that that still affects you on a day-to-day basis? Because you and I have talked multiple times. You're 180 degrees in the other direction of what you used to be. But do you think that those kind of answers to you those kind of conversations that you've had and never really gotten finality on them. Do you think they still affect you?
1: No, I don't think so. I think in my early twenties, maybe early thirties, I think I kind of, with a lot of the treatments and stuff, I kind of put it all at peace. And like I've came to realization that no, no answer will probably be good enough for me to know that like, If you knew what was going on, you're never going to admit it. If you didn't know what's going on, I'm going to continue to say, how could you not see it? And so I don't think there is really an answer. And I've came to the acceptance that it's it's something that has happened. And I can't lean on anyone else that could have done the right thing um, for me.
0: So that would kind of move us into the next part. With your stepfather, you took the stand at 18 against him when it finally goes to court, when it plays out in court. The first question is, do you get any closure on it with being on the stand about him? And do you get any, I guess you would say a finality, because we talked about your mom. Do you get a finality with that situation with him?
1: I dumbed it down to he got as, as many years as in prison as the years that he abused me. So I... I felt that what he received was just, but I mean, for a long time, and especially going through the qualification course, it's like I would think about you know harming this person, um, and it's and it, and it, and as time goes on, it's like the gunfights and the people who die. It's like we end up I end up killing people for less in a way. And I'm like, I'm oh, this person still living on this earth and this awful things that he did to me. And I'm, and I've got to the point where like, I've almost like rel- like I let that kind of go at this point. Um, I don't with some really, really good treatment <laughs> and a lot of hard work. I've got to the point where I can just say, you know, I, I won't let you have control of my heart and soul and my brain anymore. And by having that is the best thing that I can I can do and, and be the winner of this, you know, bout, I guess you could say that. I, I am no longer imprisoned by him because of the hard work that I did to get him out of my life.
0: So let's tack on to that question. We'll put a little more to it. You mm-hmm. just said that eight years... He got the amount of years that he abused you for. And you thought that that was just when you look back on it now as an adult, because at 18, come on, we're really not adults then. But when you look back on it as an adult and even more than that, when you look back on it as a father now, was that enough time?
1: I don't know. (laughs) That's hard. (laughs) Um, I think that the type of place you should have gone to me should have been different. Okay. I think that a more physical, more like general population type of facility, I think probably would have been more uh, because of the, the thinking that I have about what child molesters receive in prison would make it more acceptable, I think.
0: So all this is over 18... 18- and, and by, by no means do I mean we're done with this part of the story. But 18, <laughs> you decide to go to college. You think that you yeah. can move past this, get on with your life. You go to Purdue. You join a fraternity. You find alcohol. You uh-huh. figure that kind of helps you a little bit. It blacks out the memories, yeah. but you have to continue yeah. drinking. But let's add two more things on top of that. Your best friend commits suicide, and you have yeah. a girlfriend who was murdered? Correct. So, do you ever yeah. look at that age? Because you're what nineteen when all this is going down.
1: So, my friend Sean Keely kills himself like 2002, and I think Kayla Hurst gets murdered at the University of Ohio. In I think 2003. So, I had I had been in college. So, I started in A of 1999. Um, I joined the fraternity that fall semester. And then it's a year and a half or so, two years after that is when Sean commits suicide. And then a year, almost a year after, after I joined the army. So 2001, 2002, I have to, I don't know all of the dates. It's been so long since I've looked it up. But so that it's, it's like, I, you know, I have a girlfriend that gets pregnant. She has an abortion. I join the army, but I, I come back. My best friend commits suicide. I get called up to go to Iraq. Ex girlfriend commits, mur- you know, gets murdered with two other of her friends. And then I go back to school. <laughs> and it's just like nonstop stuff uh, that's going on.
0: So let's take this piece by piece because we need to kind of unpack this to see how it plays out later. Mm-hmm. Let's start yep. with the friend. Do you find out why your friend, well, first of all, do you see any of the signs now that? Back mm-hmm. then, and then now that you know what signs to look for, did you see any of the signs? And did you find out what was the driving factor in that him committing suicide?
1: So, Sean and I were pledge brothers, and we ended up where we were living together. Um, and he had gone to work somewhere in the summer and he had gotten a DUI, and so he was on house arrest for the charges and stuff, and he had started drinking at home and he had, um, his parole officer came over and gave him a breathalyzer and he had been drinking and he got in trouble for that. And he, I think, uh, that he was also bipolar and he was on different types of medication and he struggled with alcohol for a long time. And he just basically left in the middle of the night and drove, to michigan to his parents cabin and that's where he hung himself
0: so i want to tie these two together Mm -hmm. at 12 when you try to commit suicide you took a bunch of pills you you slit your wrist you see that he hung himself first off what memories does that bring back because you Mm -hmm. saw it at a young age so it has to be burned into your brain at such a young age when you Mm -hmm. see that this happens to him yes it's not the same way But once this becomes a reality that, that you know, that the completion of the act happened, what does that do to you? And does that take you back to the childhood again?
1: Mm, Yeah, I think so. But, like, we, we drank quite a bit. And the thing about this was different is that we, like, shared his life together as the members of the fraternity. And where we were living, people would come over and spend time with us. The, it was four people living in the house. Um, even though Ke- uh, Sean didn't like do the um, suicide at our house, people came there to spend time with us. And like there was a really good, long period of grieving that the house kind of went through. And it's different than what went on when I was 12, because I was lying about everything in the hospital. When I was a kid, I was saying that, you know, I wasn't seeing my dad enough, but also that at that same point, like my stepfather's in, stays in the hospital pretty much the whole time. So there is no way for me to like grab someone and talk to someone or anything like that. Um, so that's like a a big difference there is that one, I'm just like completely, silent about what happened. And the other one, I'm able to like cry and talk about things and share memories. And there was a lot of people around me during that time to kind of just be there for me, which was a, a little bit different in the, in the two ways.
0: So is that the first time you feel like you have really a family surrounding you?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So that's when I really felt like I had a father. It was like the upperclassman And at, at, when I was at Purdue, there was some older guys that were in, coming into college um, that I really was able to look up to and ask them for guidance in life. And Socially drinking was okay, and it seems to be okay for a really long time. It's, especially as I move into the, into the military, it's a very much accepted practice. So abusing alcohol there wasn't hard to do, and either wasn't, in in, as I move on, to living in, a country club and living, uh, and being around, you know, different army units, it's still the same acceptable behavior, but I didn't like, I didn't get very violent or I didn't get out of control or I didn't like black out and do, you know, weird things. I took care of myself and I was, you know, I was res- in the responsible in that way is that, so that I didn't get in a whole lot of trouble.
0: But don't you think the whole point of you drinking then was not to cause trouble was not to go out and party. It was to black out these memories. That was the whole point of drinking every single time we can paint it in any light that we want, but you and I have talked. And that was what it was, yeah. was blacking out those memories.
1: It's disassociative. It's a, it's to not feel anything and to not see it in my, my head anymore. The memories just were gone.
0: But they've got to come as soon as you wake up from that. And as soon as you got to do your next day, they've got to come screaming back in.
1: Yeah. And so it's like even before my feet touch the ground, they're already back in me. And so then i just got to find things to do. I work hard. I'm always doing stuff. I'm always on the move. I'm just constantly just um, can't sit still. I'm just like people just say like, I have like ADHD or something, and I'm just constantly doing something, riding my bike, going somewhere, um, finding, finding something to do. So it's, there's not a whole lot of time where it's just relax and, and re- like think about the past, um, that comes up later. It's I really focused on like the past especially in selection. I think I had a lot of time to like do some deep thinking and, and deployments and stuff like that really allow you to have some free time.
0: So does anyone know, because you said they kind of paint a picture of ADHD or anything, does anyone around, you know, of the past or is that still to yourself?
1: No. So when I was rushing the house is when I, um, it was during the last week of initiation, um, is when I went to, uh, to go on stand on the stand. Uh, so I had to tell him why I was leaving and I was like, this is what happened to me as a kid and I'm going to go put this guy in jail. And so I had to leave and and go do that. So it was very, like like I said, it was very open about what had happened, but not about how it made me feel.
0: But I think once again, you know, we talked about that, how you felt. And I think that you've come to terms with it, come to grips with it, and figured out that as you got older, your young brain didn't know how to deal with that. And that was the way that it kind of... I don't want to say cleared it up in your head, but that was the way that your, your brain pushed your body through it.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Okay, so best friend commits suicide. All of this is going on. The girlfriend is murdered. Mm-hmm. Do you ever go, what the fuck am I doing wrong?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, she was just a gal that I was with before I had left to go to basic training, but she meant a lot to me and to have that happen with that such a violent thing when I was just, you know, 22 years old was hard to deal with like this, this innocent, beautiful person life was taken and it just was, didn't make any sense. And and I don't know how people could commit acts like that. Uh, for like for simple crimes of just like a bad marijuana deal and whole incident is just bizarre. Um, so it's it's very hard for me to understand like why someone would do this. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so it just weighs down on me like humanity and and the thought from the, the you know people thinking and, and acts that people do, and it just doesn't compute, doesn't make sense.
0: You would agree, though, that it will probably never make sense. With everything yeah. that you've seen, with everything a lot of people have seen, it won't ever make sense because there is no reason to it.
1: Yeah, you're right. And it's, it's weird because I feel like when I was in my young 20s, like the world didn't make sense like it makes sense now. And it's, it seems that like just that small period of time seemed like years to me. And that, that connection with the person seemed so powerful at that time. And to have her lost was just, it just broke me. And I don't know why, but now that I'm really in my forties, like it, it doesn't seem like if I lost someone like that, it would be as painful. I don't know why, but I, maybe it's because of experience of life and and stuff, but it, it seems that my brain and my body is able to process, like, those type of events without as much emotion.
0: Well, don't you think the simple answer to that is you've seen a lot of death? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm being... I, I, I know it's very forward in saying that, but you have seen a lot of death. Yeah. And so when you see a lot of death, I guess it almost... It almost desensitizes you to it so that you can look at it kind of being backed up from the situation yeah, when, when you I, don't take everything so personally. Now, an interesting thing that you said, you joined the army at 20, but this is a quote from you. You said you no longer wanted to live, but you still yeah. wanted your life. You've got to explain what that means.
1: So the the honorable death, right, is so that I in a, in a legacy standpoint. So like for like my grandfather who was in the army and for my dad, who was in the air force and other people and the, like the loss of my friend kind of adds to this idea that like, I, I didn't want to be selfish. Um, that I wanted my something to, of my life mean more than when the first time someone thinks about me and talk about me is that they say, and this happens with everybody who commits suicide, is that that's what the first person said. They're like, he committed suicide and then he did all this stuff in his life. That first like line, I was, could not, I didn't want to happen. So that's like the honorable death thing, but inside I was dead and I was so tired of living with this, horror nightmare in my brain that i lived every day and i was just like i just wanted all the pain that was in my body to be gone i just didn't want to feel it anymore
0: now at this time you're not a greenberry right you haven't gone to the q court shot either uh, okay no. <laughs> no. so here's no. the question to that then do you think that i guess the process wasn't moving fast enough in regular army so you think well Mm -hmm. i'll up the ante on this and that should make this happen quicker Mm -hmm. and then on on top of that i want you to answer do you think you took unnecessary risks unnecessary Mm -hmm. things that you could have probably avoided to rush this into existence
1: so we'll start off like how i joined the, the military so i joined the reserves in 2000 and I go to on active duty 2001 in April. And then, so I signed up in the army as 91 Mike, which is a hospital's food service, dietetic. And, um, so I'm in the reserves and I go back to Indianapolis, uh, to the reserve unit and we get called to go up to go to Iraq in, two, in January of 2003. And I go to Fort Stewart and I spend about three months down there and they at the end of that mobilization they say we don't need your mos so they're going to send me back home because all of the patient care and everything was getting shipped out of iraq and going into launch duel so they're they're like we don't need you so i go home and at that point i tell my like commander and the first time i was like i do not want to do this this job i'll never get called up don't i don't ever want to get called up again and not go and so I go back to Purdue and I, then I joined the national guard where I joined the, the 151st long range surveillance Detachment out of Darlington, Indiana. And they have a 92 golf spot open. So I was a, an army cook and I was like, so I got a slot into that unit, which is phenomenal, it's exceptional soldiers and leadership in that, in that unit and then about six months later, we get called up and then to go to Afghanistan. In the train up there, I go to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, to Camp Robinson for to, be, to go to Eleven Bravo Infantry Training, and then I spend from July 2004 to July 2005 in Afghanistan um, with that very to, at that point in my life a very elite unit. Um, this like airborne rangers kind of thing and when i was at cook school i realized i had i had been missed guided by the recruiter and like they, they there was no talent management about what they had just walked into that office because i they probably should have sent me straight to like like ranger regiment but that didn't happen so so that's how it's kind of like started my military um route and then finishing Purdue and then going on active duty.
0: Okay. But what I'm not understanding, because it it seems like it almost disagrees with what you're saying. Like it's two different points of view. Mm-hmm. You, you say that that would be the honorable death, but then you choose hospital dietitian uh, and then you choose cook. Now I, I kind of sort of understand that one to get into that unit. I'm guessing that's what you had to do to kind of slot into that unit.
1: No, nope. so there's no. So here's the story is that when I was in high school, the, the job that I signed up for is what I did. So I was like, I already know all of this. It won't be difficult. So I'm just going to choose this, something that I already know, not just because I just want to, because I was like, I walked in the recruiter's office. Like, I just want to go to war even before 9-11 happened. Like, I just want to join the army. I want I need to leave. I need to be a part of this thing. What's the next time? What's the next bus leaving? And they're like, well, this is what I kind of signed up when I had no idea about really anything about the army at all. I didn't have, like, I didn't talk to my parents about it. I just, like, drove into the place and said, I want to join the army. Like, I'm just ready to end it up, like, end my life here right now. And I got to just go away and go do something else. So that's that's how that goes. And then it's the more riskier stuff comes later on.
0: So is the past of all of this. When you deploy 2004 to 2005, that's to Afghanistan, with this unit, is the past still in your head?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, every day, for sure. And it's hard There's there's not a lot of alcohol in Afghanistan or stuff like that. And so we went on patrols a lot, and it wasn't, at that time, Afghanistan, it wasn't really kinetic. Um, and we didn't get into, like, firefights or anything. It was just we went to some bad places that I didn't really know that it was uh, until later on in my career where we had went and we were still in light-skinned vehicles and we worked with the Gurkhas and we went all around, like from most of the time we were in Kabul and then we spent some time in in Kandahar and then we went into like Lashkar Gah and up to like Camp Price and things like that. Um, And that's where I saw this new lifestyle of soldier that's living in Afghanistan and training soldiers and living out in the middle of a fire base. And I, when I got to uh, Camp Price, I was like, this is exactly what I wanna do with my life. And that's where the Green Berets were living. And we were, we did pay missions for the ANA. So we brought money out to the ODAs to so they could pay the A guys. And I was like, this is exactly, what what I want to do because like when, um, when I first thought about when my stepfather was abusing other children, the kids had been diagnosed with autism and Down syndrome that he was taken care of. And I, at that, I was like, I, I think I put in the, this like inside of me of like, I have to help other people. As I learned more about what the Green Berets did and all the, you know, free their press. It's like this is something that I can make a change in someone's life.
0: When you go there, and and you've talked a lot about the Q course, uh, getting into special forces, and and a lot of our conversation that we've had before is during the Q course. You have a oh, lot of time yeah. to just walk around with your thoughts, and I mean that literally. You have a lot of time to walk around with your thoughts not really i i think you would agree is it is it a team based situation that you're in or are you pretty much an individual doing what you need
1: to do so i think that that like evolution of like being an individual into going into a, a team happens over the time of the it, when i went through it was 2 years long so it's at selection it's really just like what can your body do and what can you perform there's not a whole lot of like mental power there. It's just boots to the ground. How much grit do you have in your body and how strong is your back and your will? And can, you know, selection and assessment break you? Because that's what it's designed to do. The, during that part, it's, it's you're walking by yourself. It's, it's a self-guided kind of course and you get to walk to the woods and I didn't really see a, too much of a problem with land nav and anything like that. Cause I just thought about my life and the things that I had gone through and the things that I like, planned for the future and think about the past. And, and it just kept my mind busy when I was walking, you know, 10 kilometers to the next point. And I didn't really care about the rain or being cold or being wet. Like it didn't, it didn't bother me. Um, I really started to see that the the way I felt as a kid was almost like my superpower inside me that no one could ever break me that there's nothing that anyone could do worse to me than what would happen to me as a kid so I was like this is easy they feed me they let me sleep and I get to work out and like I get to be alone and I get to just you know think about what I've been through and ponder life, and I, I just put a lot of time into that, thinking about my own life and the things that I had been through. The
0: two things that come to mind off that, though, is, and the reason I ask you as an individual or a team, because it's very much starting as an individual, developing into a team. You said thinking about it helped you kind of get through it, keep your mind busy, and things like that. But it never goes away. You never find conclusion in it. It's just things that haunt you. You don't ever start to feel better about it. You don't ever start to change your opinion about it. It just almost seems to be that coal in the train that's driving you forward. And then number two, you have such a switch when you said that the the best friend committed suicide. You had this family finally coming down around you. Now in selection, you're back as an individual. You have no one telling you, They're there for you, anything like that. This is there for you to prove. And it doesn't happen until you get to that team. So how do those things help you? Because I'm not understanding if you can never change your opinion on it, never get finality from it. I get that it drives you, but at a certain point, you're just driving an empty train. And then when you finally get to that family, how does that, does that logic, does that thinking change at all?
1: So one of the greatest things that the army has is that you have graduations, and so there's every four weeks or every six weeks. There's always something that is to be achieved. So it's like I have small goals to go after, and I go after, and I have I keep my mind like, hey, it's only eight more weeks, or it's only four more months, and and I and I'll achieve something, and, and like that 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 achieving that thing meant more than anything, and so I could just focus on that goal that mission. And I was that, and it, so it helped, um, drain out a lot of those, like, um, suicidal thoughts and those things, because I was like always driving for something, always working towards something new. And there was always someone new to me and always something new to have to go do. And so the army, was really, it's really good about keeping you on task and having accomplished new things for the beginning part. And then we get into language school and it's a little bit more hands-off, but that's, it just makes it difficult because you're like, you have more access to alcohol than when you're out of Camp McCall. And, and they the going, now I'm going back to school setting again, where I feel like I know how to, how I'm supposed to work and act in this setting because I was from going to school. And now I, I think that, all of those like intrusive thoughts start to come back again as I'm just like sitting in class for months at a time. And I'm like, I'm struggling with this language thing and it's really hard on my brain and I'm giving it everything I got and I'm still failing these uh, exams. But then it's like, then you get back and, and you go to another kind of team and you go to MOS phase. And unfortunately then, and during MOS phase, uh, Jay Severe, one of our teammates, dies on a, running on a treadmill and his heart basically exploded. So we had to go to a funeral during that course down in Austin. And so then there's always this new, like, storming, norming, forming kind of team building thing that continuously happens throughout this whole entire process of becoming a Green Beret. So it's, it's you're never with the same people the whole time. So you're always learning new people and having new experiences, but to get real deep down in who we are really never happens.
0: Were you scared of who you were deep down inside? Hmm.
1: I don't know. I was, I think, confused about who I was for a while. That I was on the outside more of, A soldier than was really inside me i think
0: okay explain that
1: so it's like it's like the uniform makes you seem as if you're something and all the tabs and all the badges and all the rank right it's it's like a shield on top of us that kind of like is a barrier between who's in really inside you um and so with all that scary things a lot of people just like automatically assume that you're like a certain type of person um where i'm um, was a, a little bit as george hayden says a little bit ahead of my time a bit about the way that i thought about people in the world and the things that we went to
0: so uh, do you think that you suffered from imposter syndrome
1: I, I don't know what that is but i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. Explain <laughs> what that means. I don't know. I'll be honest. I don't know.
0: I mean, <laughs> I, I guess the best way I can say it is is that you're always thinking that you're maybe not who everyone thinks you are. That's the best way I can put it.
1: I think. Well, I. I. Yeah. Maybe. Because I. 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 As how can I say that that maybe that because it's like even going to the Ted talk and doing all these things, like people's like, you're this wonderful speaker that you've done all these great things in your life. And inside of me, I don't feel that is anything I've done spectacular. So I don't know if that like falls in it or anything like that. Like I, I've but don't never... you
0: think that ties into a lot of the stuff we talked about? <laughs> I mean, Just last night when we were talking to each other and I said, where's your military stuff? And you go, I I don't really have any. I have a couple things. And Mm -hmm. you sent me a couple pictures and stuff. And you're like, I have this stuff. (laughs) I
1: know. I I know. It's just like, I didn't ever, I never brought that identity home with me in a way.
0: But I, I, but I really am. I'm struggling. And I told you this last (laughs) night, I'm struggling to understand Why? You do all of these things. You don't just do them for no reason. You and we'll get into your combat deployments and how many times and all that kind of stuff. But you don't do it for no reason. But then you just step away and you're like, yeah, whatever.
1: Yeah.
0: There, I mean, I get it. There's. <laughs> there, yeah. There, I know. There's a humbleness to it. I get that. But at a certain point, I go, "Wow, this guy spent 24 years of his life doing this, and he has like five, quote unquote, knickknacks sitting around."
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I was thinking about it today, and I was like, you know, I just didn't really get a lot of stuff for my teams. I don't know. I don't have no idea. I didn't wasn't a person like I need a plaque when I leave or.
0: Well, I think you described it to me when you said one of your senior guys had told you at one point, if you're not one of the guys on the wall, there's no reason that, yeah. and I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said, but that there was no reason to really celebrate yourself. But mm-hmm. it, it it still begs the question to me that at no point in your military career, because you say my team didn't give me a lot of stuff. Yeah, but you earned a lot of things. There's things that could hang on the wall to show that you're proud of it. And that's the part that i'm having trouble kind of putting into place because it almost seems and i don't think this is the case but it almost seems like you're not proud of it
1: oh Oh, it's hard um there's things that i'm proud of and i think war and going and doing those things is even harder like the moral atrocity and the the taking of life that i think is hard i think the identity of what people think about a green beret and special operations is uh, generally wrong. And I, my perspective on it's a little different than what they have. And so it's, I mean, even with when people, I have a hard time when people are like, thank you for your service and stuff, because I just like, I don't, I didn't do it for you. I don't know.
0: So who'd you do it for? I don't know. Uh,
1: you, you got to. <laughs> there's, there's, it's like I, I didn't do, I didn't like join the army for God country or anything. Um, I just, I wanted to help other people. That's it. I wanted, I wanted to help train. I wanted to help train people so that they could fight for their own. So other American people wouldn't have to go to war.
0: But that, by definition, Trevor, is doing it for that other person so they didn't have to go
1: do it. Uh, No, but I don't see it. I don't feel that like that, though.
0: I I want to talk to you (laughs) about your combat times. Now, 2004, you go to Afghanistan. But we need to talk about after you're in Special Forces, I I just want to lay out for the people so we can get into this. You have deployments to Afghanistan in 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, and 2014. We have to talk about all the time that you spent over there. I've even heard you compare downtown Kabul to Uh, downtown Chicago. Correct. Okay. (laughs) First off, with everything that we've talked about in the past, all the stuff that you've struggled with, uh, you even mentioned tonight that You had killed people for less than what your stepfather did to you. I want to understand you from the inside out as you go to Afghanistan as a special forces operator, something that you wanted to do and live your life doing. You are on the ground as a special forces operator. I want to know what's going on through your head.
1: Oh, this is the greatest thing ever. It is the most freedom I've ever had in my life being there and being on that fire base with that ODA having 200 square kilometers of land that we had to patrol, protect, bring governance to that. I could really affect another human's life because of the things that I did or didn't do, there is a, a lot of feeling as if I never know when I'm going to die. There was a, where we were, there was on Western Afghanistan, there was a, a lot of IEDs and stuff that was uh, a constant threat for, to us, but I would end up going on patrols and be away from our main fire base for like 30 days at a time. And I would take Afghans and Americans on patrols and I was the only Green Beret there and we... Did a lot of actions that I kind of feel are in the gray area where we would do like false IEDs and we would attack things at night that weren't necessarily anything that we would do like faint operations and we would do like launching of mortars into different types of areas and just for containment and things like that and the clearing of villages and just the treating of people good and treating of people bad and like gunfights and and Magnus Johnson's with us. Uh, he's the owner of Mission Twenty Two and he had left after that. To, uh, so that's this gonna be my third deployment in two thousand and eleven. And he was our eighteen Charlie and he took care of all the IEDs and stuff and he. He took upon it as like, the only way that you guys are going to be safe is to take care of all this stuff, all these IEDs and things for us. But there was so much disconnect between all of us and we were in so many different places that our team kind of just like was broken apart. And so there wasn't a whole lot of like internal team building or any type of family, I don't think a lot of. The that either of the point to those two deployments in 2011 to 2012 into 2013, I didn't feel as if like what everyone thinks like this camaraderie of men. It just wasn't. I never really necessarily felt it.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the contradictions of the statements that you just made. (laughs) And and, but I I want to point this out because your brain. It's so fascinating to me how you think because you think that you're going in one direction and all of a sudden you go in another direction. When I just asked you how you felt when you got on the ground, you said, this is the greatest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And maybe four sentences later, you said, well, we did things that are kind of in the gray area and I don't know how I feel about them and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's a huge contradiction between the two. This is the greatest thing in the world, and I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah. So you got to tell me how you settle it in your brain.
1: Drugs and alcohol. Like I, I lived off of value when I was gone. I end up you know, injecting synthetic opiates, uh, and I just start to. Kill all the pain that's inside me, and it's it's like the necessary evil that we have to do. And but also like the humanity of me is being ripped and taken out of me at the same time. But also at the same time, we're doing like humanitarian things and giving food and supplies to people and building yeah, communities and villages back. And but then there's it's like it's day and night kind of things. Like there's things that we do during the day and it's like, Hey, we're great people. And then things that we're kicking down doors and searching people's homes in the middle of the night, living this two different lifestyles. And it's very confusing. And like, it's just, it's exhilarating though. It's, it's the dopamine rush that is incredible of, of doing things with little sleep and going places that is, you know, not safe for us in completing missions and yeah, just traveling over a long distance of, of space and, and not getting hit by IEDs and being able to live through that. And then we come back and like, we live in a kind of a semi-safe place and, and just like, how and then we try to sleep and, and it's just a, an ongoing continuous you know however seven months long of non-stop and it's just it's just draining and I I left and I cried on the helicopter all the way until I got to to Bagram and I was just like I have no idea how I lived through this at all and then six months later I went back to the same place and it was scary as hell because I, I, I didn't know how I was going to make it home.
0: <laughs> something that you just said there, and I, I think it's interesting to tie back to the childhood yet again. When you described your stepfather in the beginning, you said he was one person during the day and he was a monster at night. And when you just compared your time in Afghanistan, you said during the day we're one thing and at night we're doing something completely different. Have you ever mm-hmm. thought about the parallels between the two? No, <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> not to right now. No.
0: Do you think that's why you had such trouble with some of the stuff that you were doing? Because you didn't want to be mm-hmm. that guy. Mm-hmm. I've asked you that before. Mm-hmm. You were worried about being that guy. Do you think maybe that's why you had such trouble evening mm-hmm. out in your brain? I don't want to be that guy.
1: I mean, the way you make it sound, it makes a lot of sense. It makes it almost attainable or, or attributable to something in a way.
0: I, I just, when I heard you say it, I'm like, wow, yeah. he, that's how he yeah. compared it before was day and night. And you've told me, cause we've talked about this before about becoming that person and about worried becoming that person. Mm-hmm. When yeah. all of this was going on in your brain, and and you're seeing these traumas, do you feel at any point that you're losing your humanity?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's after my fourth deployment when I felt like the compartmentalization of being a forward deployed Green Beret and being back home in North Carolina kind of merges together. And I felt like I brought that guy home with me and it it was hard. I think the the, the, like I said, like the compartmentalization, like I had learned as a kid, like I'm going to leave this there, no longer stay there anymore. And it finally came home with me. And that's when I was like shooting up uh, at home and starting to drink a lot more. Uh, It's just things started to and internally started to get worse at that point.
0: What is the, the switch? What is the catalyst that makes this happen? Were you, because for so many years you did it so well, compartmentalizing, even through, I guess we're up to like three deployments on your fourth, when this happened. So what was the catalyst that pushed you over? And you said, I can't do this anymore. I can't compartmentalize this stuff anymore.
1: I think it's like when, my wife gets pregnant. I think that's when it starts to really seep in on me that like the things that I was doing is not as glorious as I felt it was at one point. I don't have like a pinpoint time in my brain where I'm like, everything just came colliding together.
0: Right. There there wasn't an event that pushed this into happening. Mm-hmm. So then Mm-hmm. What was it about your wife becoming pregnant that you think made you change mm-hmm. this thinking? You you had to have taken a completely different approach to thinking. Of course, you said you always had trouble with that gray area stuff. But for it mm-hmm. to come completely apart, not be able to compartmentalize it anymore, there had to be a reason. And what do you think that is after your wife got pregnant that made that switch happen?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I was really scared that I was going to somehow and fear of life of like hurting or doing something to my kids that had happened to me when I was younger and that I would not be understood about how the things that who I did and what I did as a, a soldier would be understood by my kids. Like that, that didn't seem to me as like, that's what a father is and that I wouldn't be like a loving father to my kids because of the the things I had done that had happened to me and that what I had done to other people while I was away.
0: But you don't by any means think that you were a bad person, do
1: you? I don't know. It's if we weren't there would people still be alive? And it's like, as, as like my understanding about the war and what's going on starts getting added into this, it's like, what are the effects that we're trying to achieve here? What are we doing that means anything? And that starts to play, like, as I start to learn about the time of what we've been there and it's like, what are we achieving after 14 years in Afghanistan and, and I'm getting older and and I'm starting to get understanding like the strategic realm of things and the implication in the, the strategic use of ODAs and areas and like, what what are we really doing? And then what is the the overall mission and effect that we're trying to achieve becomes even harder to see over time.
0: There was a point where, I think it's after fourteen because fourteen's when your daughter's born, but you yep. are you do a deployment in fourteen, right? Yeah. Okay. I,
1: I go for a, a month. Yeah.
0: So when you go over, you do this deployment. Your daughter's born. At this point, you're asking you want to go away. You want to go down to the dive school. This is when you want to step away, right?
1: No, not yet. Um. So right before that, I had left the dive team, and my team are was like i want you to go work at the headquarters um within the battalion and i re-enlist and so i went to afghanistan for a month and worked at the siege sodaf um and then i came back home and then that's when i applied to go to the national defense university to get my master's degree and then that's when i have like my first suicide attempt and i'm there as i start to open up the picture aperture of what's happening in Washington and, and that kind of understanding of stuff. And so then after that kind of a, I go back to group, um, third group in 20 July of 2016. And then I do a trip to Africa to Burkina Faso. And then that's when I really decide that killing people is not for me and it's really paying a toll on my body and my mind and That's when I come back and I request to go down to Key West in 2017 in July.
0: Okay, so let's roll it back a little bit to 15 then because I was a little confused on the timeline. So, October 15, um, first suicide attempt. Now, what month in 14 is your daughter born? In April. Okay, so April 14 to October 2015. You had done, you said a month in 2014 in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You, you come back uh, mm-hmm. October 2015, your first suicide attempt. Now that you're back here, you're a, a grown man. You've done this. Do you reflect back on the childhood? And this is where I, I think that you, you went back there. But I also think that that goal of dying that honorable death and stuff, it didn't happen. No matter what what you did, where you worked, anything like that, that never happened. You said you even cried on the helicopter and couldn't figure out how you made it. Do you think that you're just going to have to take
1: matters into your own hands to do
0: it? I'm, I'm trying to understand why this happens.
1: Yeah. First part is that I'm drinking excessively than I had it before. There's a lot of education stuff that's in this program for strategic studies. That's it's, putting a lot of emphasis on politics and diplomacy and things like that. And I start to feel as if I'd been almost betrayed by the U.S. government and their feeling about how they feel for service members and, and what our, our role is for the United States government to kind of why we're here and why we exist is it, it starts to feel as if like, I'm just leverage for the country to, to do it's bidding and so that it really starts to break my heart about, I really felt like we were bigger than that. So there's, I'm drinking my family dynamics kind of out of place because we, Eleanor's only like a year and a half at this point old and like I just, I'm struggling in school once again, and I just feel like I, I don't have a purpose at home and that I'm confused about the things that we had done and the things that we've been through and the taking of life and worrying about, like, am I going to be a good father? And, and there was, like, this list of things that, like, are going on. It's just, like, there's just too much in my head for me to deal with anymore and i just i i don't feel like i'm going to be able to be a contributor that i don't and i can't be a leader in this unit and that i would go back to and i was like i'm just tired of feeling all this pain in my body and so i made a choice to like there was either going to like go out to like the luzon drop zone and do and like hang myself or do something like that but instead i just walked into the hospital on Womack Hospital at now Fort Liberty, Fort Bragg. And I walked into the ER and was like, I need a lot, I need help or like something bad's going to happen. And and so then I was committed um, into the the psych ward there for about five days.
0: Does it help at all?
1: (sighs) I think the time there helped. This this story that I tell like a psychologist about who I am and the things that I've been through in my life isn't really heard. I think that they get focused on drugs and alcohol and say like everything will be better if you quit drinking and my commander Marshall McGurk comes to like get me and release me and he hears all this story and Marshall's like, you haven't addressed anything about why he's here. Like he's telling you that there's all these other unresolved things in his life that he needs help with. And all you're telling him is he has to quit drinking. Like it's not going to fix anything. And so then at that point, there are a lot of me wants to get better for the the men of the army, the men of third group. And so I've really put a lot of time to kind of get back to deployable status. So that I can go downrange again and show people that you can have a suicidal event and that you can return to duty and that it's possible and that I mean, you can be trusted and that there is, you know, still a, you can still have a purpose even though you had a you know a rough time.
0: But the million-dollar question is. <laughs> Did you fix anything before that? Because you look like you're jumping right back into the fire without fixing anything.
1: I, I'd start to, I, I wasn't looking at like, the, it seems like the average thing that seems that the operators start doing is looking at like their testosterone looking at their B12 and looking at all the things on like, what else is wrong with me and not my head to fix this. So let's get all those things looked at and let's go to behavioral health and start talking to people and talking about how I feel inside and talking about other things and I'm, as a kid. And like, I'm explaining all this stuff and I'm like, I'm getting offloading a lot of this stuff at that time, but it's not, it's not necessarily helping at all. It's just, I, I always like to say that it was giving me a seven day lease on life and I would have to go back and do it again.
0: So it was that bad to where you had to make sure you cleaned out the the luggage every seven days. But mm-hmm. then once again, in your head, you you tell yourself, I want to go back and show these guys you can have suicidal ideation. You can still lead and everything like that. Well, but you know that without that, <laughs> you're not going to be able to do
1: that. Correct. So it's this, uh, how much of the truth are you telling how much, how much, how honest are you?
0: How much of the truth were you telling?
1: I don't know. Probably about
0: 50%. So you're telling them what you want them to know, not what they need to know, yeah. or
1: it's how's a, it working? I think it's a, it's a, a mixture of both. Like I don't want to be so far gone that I'm like need to get out of the army, but I'm, I'm going to tell them enough to say that I'm getting better over time. That like scores are coming down and all these other things that's helping it's not as bad but it's not getting better at all <laughs> like so we have an event and it, and i'm elevated and i come back down for a while and then i start the treatment processes and just and it's just talk therapy it's nothing nothing that i go through later on and so i'm just sitting down with the social worker just saying like How i feel and what's going on in my life and i'm like we're not getting anywhere at all but but me just showing up here makes it enough that i'm doing better
0: you have said on multiple occasions just talking tonight during this conversation that you didn't want to be seen as this person you didn't want to be seen as a bad person and everything like that so i wonder in your brain when you think about the suicide how do you think people will see you? I know you said in the beginning they say he, he killed himself, but he was a Green Beret, he was this and that. Don't you worry at all that people will say that maybe something bad or something will come out that you didn't know about, you can't control the narrative, anything like that. Do you worry about any of that?
1: At the time that I'm like having a suicidal event or like having ideations, there is no care about any of that but it's no care for myself or my family or my kids all any of it's gone um i as i get more and more treatment done i start to recognize how painful that a suicidal event has on other people and would and have on uh, my family and my kids and it it starts to deter in my brain that this is not a, an option that I, I really got to fight against it because it it is so toxic and that it it's, it doesn't solve anything at all. It's, 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 I hate saying it's a coward's way out, but to me, it, it, it's like, you weren't man enough to face the problems of your life and he just wanted it to be gone and that's to me it's just like over time it wasn't it wasn't viable because of all the other things that would come from it that even though i wouldn't be able to see that what would just just how many lives and and people would be destroyed because of it
0: in in essence you're turning the corner when you're thinking about this stuff when you go to the dive school, you actually love being at the dive school. You love diving.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, <guess. laughs> I hate it. it. Sucks. It's not fun. It hurts a lot for some reason at first. Like, so I'm like, man, this this diving stuff really hurts my bones a lot. But it's um, there is a lot of purpose there. There is a lot of things to do. There is a lot of like I had people to count on you. There is a lot of being an expert at something that you have not necessarily an expert at before. There is a community there that I hadn't had really uh, because it's a necessity down there in Key West. Both of our kids are born at this time. We we lived through a hurricane. Like there, and there's like these wonderful family team building events that we go through that kind of shape us to who we are today. And the whole spearfishing thing and diving stuff, like, it's, it's, um, I'm so thankful that I got to go down there.
0: The reason we talk about that, though, is because we get to another setback. You.
1: I know. That's I know.
0: You get put on a medical condition where you can't dive anymore. Yeah, that's right. So let's talk about the medical condition, what it means for you diving, what it means for kind of your future
1: as a Green Beret. Hmm. So I have a PFO, which is 25% of the population has at birth. Basically, like there's a flap in your heart that doesn't seal up the first time you take a breath. You're supposed to not be able to go to dive school or be a diver if you have this in your heart because it allows more nitrogen throughout your body when you go down to depth and so the partial pressure of nitrogen is compressed. And so with this, it puts more nitrogen into my bloodstream, into my muscles. And so then when you do one foot every two seconds, and then and then it, as you breathe in, and exhale, the nitrogen comes out of your body at a time, right? So I have excess so that nitrogen gets collected into your joints and unfortunately what generally happens is you get decompression sickness. And my last dive in July of 2019, I got the bends and I ended up doing about an eight hour chamber ride. And I'm lucky it got the bubble got stuck in my leg and not in my lungs or my brain, or I would have been at 130 feet underwater and I would have probably been brain dead. That happens, and so they tell me you can't be a diver because of this and i'm like okay uh then uh, i guess like but that doesn't take away from me being a green beret or anything like that it's just i can't dive and it's okay and I,
0: that's not what i'm that, that's not what i mean by that what i mean by that is what it means to you as a green beret because we've just talked for this past 30 45 minutes about the trouble and the moral dilemmas you were having with what you were doing then you go there, you don't really have to deal with those moral dilemmas and things. But now they're saying you can't stay here either. Uh, so yeah. it, it, it definitely puts a stress back on you of, okay, well, where does this mean that I go from here?
1: Yeah. But I mean, I was the honest, I was okay with it because the thing I really fell in love with was spearfishing and it was on a breath hold. And I didn't use compressed gas, and so I didn't really mind. And I like hurt my heart for about a day that I wouldn't be able to dive with my kids on gas. But like my kids were diving at you know five, four years old, they were diving to fifteen feet underwater with me on the the reef in Florida. And I was like, this is perfect. I don't. They don't need to be able to stay for thirty minutes underwater with me. Like this is fine. And so I kind of just let it go. I I when I was in Jacksonville, uh when I had to go to the rehab center, they're like, Well we can put a stint in your heart and you can continue to dive. And I was like, I'm I'm good. It's fine. Uh it doesn't need to happen. I appreciate it though.
0: <laughs> we need to go back though, because before this happened twenty nineteen 2018 you're starting to get a lot of suicide ideations again. So we go from 20 2016 where or excuse me 2015 to where you walk into the hospital. 2018 you start getting a lot, but we need to talk about 2019. You start getting a lot of and describe to everybody that's listening how you described it to me because you said that you'd had them before 2016, 2018 but they really started to make you nervous because of how they were happening.
1: Right, so the suicidal ideations and stuff were significantly troubling, some because they would happen when I was excessive binge drinking. And so then when I went to the Jacksonville Drug and Alcohol uh, Center because I had, been diagnosed as alcohol abuse disorder from the VA and having that on my dive physical, they, I had to go to treatment. And so I ended up going up there and I hadn't been drinking. I'd been there for a few days and I feel this all of like my soul is turning black inside me. and, And I, and I feel like the purpose of my life is over that I will not be able to be a provider. That I have no love for my wife and my kids anymore, and that the the who the purpose I have in life is over, and I was like I am just a burden, and I'm a threat to the livelihood of my wife and the, and the family, and the scary part about all of this is this is the first time or well I'd say it the second time because when I was twelve I wasn't drinking, and now I was just about to turn 39, so I was 38 years old, and I was sober, and this was like the worst way I had felt about myself since I had been 12 years old, and it was extremely scary. And so I just told the counselor like, hey, I gotta go to, I have to go somewhere safe, because for the last two days, all I wanted to do is drive my car into the tree and just die and not be here anymore. And so then I got committed to the psych ward again for the second time. And um, I was there, got stabilized. And the bad thing that happens here is after three days of of being there, my best friend down in Key West, Curtis Kellum, shoots himself in the head and kills himself. So I'm in the psych ward. My best friend kills himself. And I'm all alone for my family. And I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with my life at this point. The doctor comes in and is like, Hey, we have a treatment center in Panama city beach, and they deal with all the problems that you have. And I think that this is where you need to go. And so then I moved down there and I'm, you know, down here for, or it's just down the road from where I live. And I spent 60 days there doing some really intense EMDR and cognitive behavioral therapy and AA and NA and yoga and just different things like that and some art therapy and things, whatever. But I really get to focus on like group talk and like explaining the things that I've been through in my life. And it's an eye-opening thing about what I kind of see myself as and how I can kind of help people uh, because of the way I like tell people about my story and like how I kind of craft like how it feels inside. And it's just, I think it really helps people with their, um, their own journey that they're going through.
0: After your friend kills himself, you are, you go to a treatment center where you start really turning the corner and, and feeling like you're becoming better. Mm-hmm. When you look back on his, because it's such a short amount of time, first off, do you figure out why? Because my Mm -hmm. question to you will be is why do we see this rate rising so fast right now? Why do you think it's happening? Mm -hmm. Um, And then did you ever find out the storyline behind him? Cause you were gone. You were in the psych ward. Mm -hmm. What happened?
1: So before I had left, like Curtis had had an event where he was dealing with a lot of alcohol abuse and a lot of anxiety and a lot of, things that he felt he couldn't control. He was in the 82nd and he had done deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I and I think he had a rough childhood and he didn't find purpose in his life after leaving the army. He had hurt his hand and like broke his hand and he got medically discharged. And I don't think he had enough time before he left the army to really, kind of grow out of who he was. And I think he was kind of stuck there of, of like being a deployer in and, and that life. And it was confusing and he couldn't be settled in his own skin. And so I think that's for him, but the a rise in the, I think that there's an elevated suicide rate amongst people who train to kill people and have this, this, uh, training that it's okay to take life. I think there's this morality thing that goes with it, that is hard to hold on to, uh, that you're, you know, it's wrong to take someone else's life, but that's your job and. So that's one part of it. And then the other part is that people aren't, aren't given enough time to grow out of this portion of their life before they're removed from it to be able to say, like, I'm going to say goodbye to that, who I was, and now I'm going to grow into being a new person. I think that's, to me, those are the two things that are the the number one things that have an increased rate for a suicide like event
0: i want to bring up your text that we talked about today on there this is exactly what we talked about on the text where you said that there were people leaving the job early they didn't have time to grow into the person that they were going to be i think this kind of once again ties back into what we talked about about your knickknacks that you have uh your five of them uh, is that <laughs> I I think you and I have talked and you had time to grow into that person. Mm -hmm. So do you think that on a bigger scale than just your friend, just you, that people don't have time to grow into who they are or is it like a lot of people? Because I, I, I almost fear that it's this way people don't want to be another person. They don't think that this ride is ever going to end and they never take time to look what's going to happen in the future. And when it hits them in the face, they have no way to control it.
1: I think it's very scary. I think it's almost as scary as like, I'm going to join the army. Like now I'm going to join and do something else. Like that's a really big like commitment like that. I'm going to go do and like to go do that. I can be like I. People might be able to remember that day where they're at Meps and be like, "This was the scariest thing ever." I think it's almost like that same way. It's a a fear of losing an identity that means something, but it's their own personal, like I don't want to say like pedestal, but it's their own like I am bigger than the rest of everybody else because of what I've done. I think that losing that is very hard to give up and be okay with it because of how strong we are and how much we're appreciated and, and the things that the U S military has done for the world, for the history. There's so much there that is, and intertwined into that identity, um, that people really, I don't think really want to leave it, but I think it's a necessity to do.
0: When you say it's a necessity and you look back on you approaching that time period, do you think that you took the appropriate measures? Do you think you took the appropriate time to know what was going to come? When all that ended.
1: So actually, I, I asked my wife about that. And she said, I, th- I saw you turn out of being completely committed to the military when our daughter was born. I think she's like, I could tell that it wasn't everything that you wanted to do with your life anymore. She thought that that's when I started to pull away from this job. So that So that would be almost 10 years prior to me retiring. And I slowly and consciously like took assignments and found other things to be good at and to be an expert at and, and be able to bring value, but not be, uh, not be like an operator status in a way. Like I'm going to decide that that is, that is a lifestyle that I can't live forever that I need to learn how to do something better and I need to be, a, develop myself to be a teacher and an instructor. How can I be a, a better fit at a strategic level and be able to use my mind more than just my body to like go on deployments and, and things like that and affect the battlefield, not necessarily from my actions on the ground, but the actions that I can make people make decisions, better decisions. and through my experience and then through the knowledge of what reading doctrine and reading other things and just being able to, to be a contributor that was in a, in a method that was like my mind and the things that I, I have experienced and used versus me actually holding a gun. Cause it's like, I can't hold this gun forever cause it's going to destroy me. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not a real big fan of like holding black rifles. I just, and it's probably very odd to hear that. From guys that are like, you know, operators that like, all I want to do is shoot guns and go to the range, and I'm just like, I'm not really, I'm not really into that at all.
0: We've talked about your wife a lot tonight.
1: We brought her up a couple times.
0: <laughs> you mind talking about what she does for a living?
1: Yeah, so she has, uh, she's a behavioralist and she's a board certified behavioral analyst. She works with kids' behaviors and changing their, the way that they act or the way that they don't act and, and working with kids to be able to like express themselves better. And she's a a real big advocate to get kids treatment and, and things that they can, so they can have a better setting at school. It's kind of on the real basic level of what... I I believe if, if she was to tell you this, she'd be like, he's totally nuts. He's not even telling you what I do. But
0: <laughs> Before we get into the treatments, because I think that's a big part of your story. Mm-hmm. I bring up your wife to ask you how much of her and what she knows and how she knows to approach subjects
1: has helped you get through this. Oh, I think it's 100%. A lot of her telling me how to view things and change my perspective on how I'm acting and the way I should view the world is 100% changed the way that things affected me because I was shown a different way to look at things rather than just my own view. And so in having someone else's perspective to kind of like change that lens on a situation, uh, it was, has absolutely been crucial to getting better for sure and how patient she is with me and her understanding about why I acted in the ways that I did and her being a huge advocate about like him quitting drinking fixes nothing. He has to fix the things that he's been through in his life before he'll ever get better. So stop, stop trying to say it's an alcohol. He's, he's actually using alcohol to cope with these things. And if you take that away from him, he has no more coping skills. So let's teach him something to deal with these problems.
0: So let me ask you, because I know how she feels about you as a husband and a father, because I've talked to her. Yeah. How do your feelings feel about being a husband
1: and being a father? Mm-hmm. Well, the husband thinks is really incredible to be able to know that there's someone in my life that truly feels protected by me and that she knows that I will always be there for her and that she like has a true like partner that she can grow with and has been growing with for the last 12 years and she can see a future with us together which is absolutely incredible to have a person like that that's always by your side and willing to work with you through things and and seeing me go through all of these things and never give up on me has just been absolutely extraordinary and she's the strongest person that I know and I don't know how like I could have done any of these things without her the kids is like the greatest thing about the kids that I feel that happens between two people is this childbirth time because it's the, the most love that I've ever felt in my life was when my kids were born. And I was like, I don't understand how I could ever not want to be with this woman because of what we just brought together in this world. And I was like, this is the, the thing that has made us one together is this child that we've brought into this world. And it was absolutely the, in like you want to have like a a positive trauma event is like that moment. And like, I have that in my, in me forever. And I'm grateful to have it for both of our children to see my kids, um, see me as the, the number one thing in their life to, to see how much the impact that I have on their day to day and that how, who I am as a person has, has helped grow who they are to be like, have the compassion and be vulnerable and be able to express who they are as people is because of me and my wife. And to see that, that that's what we created is really awesome. And so this, this, this impact on children is just so awesome. If you are able to have this environment that is nurturing and caring, and that lets these kids thrive and have just a, a beautiful childhood where I'm just like, I never could just be innocent and. Enjoy life, and to be able to provide that for them has been really extraordinary.
0: Let me ask you something though, and I want you to be honest about it. You just said how you explain them to be honorable, to have a good life, to to be a child, and all those kind of things. Do you think it's as important to show them the messy side of your life too? Because we talked about it before. You didn't know how they would react to what you had done over in Afghanistan and have you incorporated any of that i know they're very young for that but Mm -hmm. is there a point where all of this is gonna you're gonna Mm -hmm. show them the entire trevor
1: yeah absolutely i just think there's this like sexual abuse and death and killing is is gonna happen um but i just don't think that they're conceptually ready to see what that is and, and be mature about those type of words and, and understand that like where that's at, because Sean and I talked about like, when do we show them this Ted talk thing? It's going to have to happen at some point because they are like, they understand how the internet works and it's not hard to find your dad on the internet. So we've started to kind of, talk about and discuss like how that needs to be and what that needs and when, when will it be appropriate? So it's, it's going to happen 100%. I like, very like transparent and we're not going to, we're not a family that is like holding secrets in or anything like that. I just, I don't even want to say I want to wait for it. I just, I, I'm not ready to change them yet. And to think that there is bad things out there that, especially the things that like happened to me and the things that are like that I'm I'm not ready to skew their view on the world just yet. It's going to happen. And it's, there's as they get older and older, like it's going to, it's going to happen on its own. Um, But I'm definitely not afraid or not going to keep any of this stuff um, from them at all.
0: And the reason I ask that is not necessarily at what time are you going to do it, but I want to ask if if you've made it through all these treatments and everything and you've turned the corner of who you are in a 180-degree direction, are you okay with letting them know all the, the bad stuff about you? Are you okay with letting them know you've done bad things, that bad things have happened to you? Is that all good in you yet, or are you still working through that?
1: Oh, so I'm... The same with my wife. Like I had to tell her everything that I went through so that she could understand me. And I, th- it needs to happen with the kids as well. Be- because it's, I don't wanna be like, there's my dad that went to war and he doesn't talk to us about anything or doesn't talk about the war, doesn't talk about his feelings or didn't, didn't do anything like that. He's just, he's still stuck there. Or like I'm sitting at the VFW or something like that. Like, I, I like that's not what I want to happen. And I want them to know who I am and the things that I went through and the things that I did. And that that's who their dad is. And that there's, and it's, and it's okay to have been through those things and for them to know those things about me. And I just think that that builds like more family, more community, more trust, more knowledge about who I am and who we are as a family, I think just makes us that much stronger by being honest about the things that I've been through and the things that I've done.
0: Do you think looking at it now that you're okay with all of that
1: coming out? Yeah, absolutely.
0: That, I mean, that's awesome to I've, hear. I
1: think, I've, I think I've put in so much time and effort and into it that it's becoming just simple and just easy. And like, it doesn't seem to hurt anymore. It doesn't seem to like put knives in my sides and, or that I have to be fearful of saying anything or that I have to compartmentalize or keep something away from anyone. Like it's just there. I don't see why you just can't talk to anyone on the street for anything that you've ever been through at this point, it's like, I, I'm an open book and I want to be able to share those experiences with everyone, especially my family and my kids.
0: That's awesome to hear because I think you would agree five years ago, that was not the same answer. Uh,
1: yeah, no. Not, not uh, even? I,
0: no way. Yeah, I, I think we I weren't know. even close to that. <laughs>
1: uh, I think I was still angry a lot. I think I had a lot of of unknown of had no way to explain it or that I felt felt would have been acceptable or I would have been looked down upon or or judged or not been this wonderful father that it would change their view of who I was and I don't feel that way anymore.
0: I think we need to talk about the treatments that have gotten you here because you've had a couple different ones. And I, I've said to a lot of people on the show, I think that a lot of these, if you talk to the general public, if you talk to people that don't talk about this stuff on a regular basis, they seem like very fringe therapies. And and I would like to see these things become mainstream therapies. Yes, they are mainstream therapy in certain circles mm-hmm. but I think the general public and I think you would agree looking at them says how does this even work so can we start with SGB
1: yeah it's still a ganglion block so the very like, first thing I gotta tell you is that I'm not a medical professional and this is Trevor Beamon's experience right so the very first thing you have to remember for all of this is that my trauma was like this big. Right. And so you got to remember that in context of all of this stuff. So the stellar ganglion block, I had a dual sympathetic reset, which is two shots on, uh, on your side or neck and, the the stellar ganglion nerve that's here, that's connected to your medulla portion of your brain. And, uh for us that been through a lot of trauma it's it kind of just like switched on and it's like hyper right so what this shot does with each side is a local anesthetic into these this nerve bundle and this it makes it, it almost your amygdala like relaxes for like 15 minutes with the local anesthetic and What that did for me is that if I, if you were to look at life as picture in picture, like on your TV, like all the trauma events in my life were like pictures throughout the, the, like on the television, right? And what that did was like, it took the screen down and all I had, all I could finally see the world just with what was there and nothing else from the past. And it just, I didn't feel like someone was behind me coming after me all the time. And that's where I started to see, is this the, you know, I, when I say that downtown Kabul is the exact feeling of Chicago is that you can be in both places and have the same problem is that you feel as if someone's going to hurt you all the time. And if that's happening to soldiers and that's happening to Americans here in the United States. And one is getting a shot on the side of their neck and it's taking away that hypervigilance. It's just not for soldiers. It's for everyday people who go through trauma and live in in bad places. Um, it's just part of living. I say in these, in this time in life, like there's so much that you're just, it's, it's your your brain is hijacked from all this information and it's just you're saturated and it's just too much too much coming at you at once um and so you just get overwhelmed and so that's the kind of easiest thing so the right side is for adulthood trauma and the left side is for childhood trauma and i find it feel like they overlap almost and so they did a one did a little bit, I felt. And so what really starts to happen is if you were to look at memories as like a on a hard drive and they were just sporadically placed on the hard drive all these events, right? And so as the hard drive spins around, it hits these events, right? And they're out of place. So if you took a a defragger and it would take all those trauma spots, it would pick them up and like put them in the right spot. So over time, it's taken those memories and put them back into the right spot. And it's making them turn into a long term memory into my like body and soul and my brain that aren't hitting me in my eyes picture in picture every single day. And so now I don't see it when I'm reading books or if I'm playing with my kids. It's just feels like high school graduation now, not like it just happened yesterday. And it changes my life for sure Uh, because I'm like present. I'm here. I'm not in Afghanistan. I'm not in a bed with my stepfather when I'm 12 years old. Like all those are gone and it's phenomenal. And it's it's, like the world is open to me again. And it's like I'm allowed to really use the power of my brain again because before when I write emails or have conversations or any of these things like my body and brain is still back in those times and I'm not really here so I'm like trying to have a conversation with you but also I'm in a gunfight in Afghanistan or thinking about my friend committing suicide in college and it's just not it's non-stop and I'm just like it's overwhelming
0: you also have done ketamine treatments correct yeah all right so a lot of people would say, let me, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. People would say, well, yeah. if this SGB works so well, if this kind of therapy works so well, why do this other kind of therapy? So I think first we need to set the basis of that where no, none of these, and I think you will agree, is the magic bullet that's going to make something happen. Right. There has to be multiple aspects of it. That includes talking to a therapist, all of those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about if the SGB works so great, why do we do ketamine treatments? Why do we do things yeah. like this?
1: So the the ketamine SGB track was all in one week. So that I did three days of ketamine, and uh, Dr. Lipoff says that the ketamine is like a fertilizer for your brain, and it kind of prunes your amygdala to get ready to do it, the SGB. So I did. So that was that ketamine's for TBI. Um, neural pathways the medicine in your brain like starts to grow those synapses and those brain fibers and things like that then i got the sgb and then i did S- the next day sgb and then the afternoon i did a ketamine treatment and then the day after that i did another ketamine treatment so it wasn't like they were like months apart it was all in a very short period of time and that was actually the protocol that they were trying to do is do the ketamine SGB together and not have latency in between those type of things.
0: What what made you feel, I guess, at what point in this treatment plan did you feel like, wow, I haven't felt like this? And I've heard guys say, like with the stellate, I heard one guy say that he got it and he slept better that night or the next night than he had in like 20-something years.
1: I sleep really good. So it wasn't a sleep thing for me. What got me was that I woke up the next day and I didn't think about being abused and I didn't think about killing my stepfather. And I was like, this is incredible. That's cause every, it was every day I felt as soon as my feet touched the ground, that's the first thing my brain would go to. And I was tired of it and it was, then it was gone
0: at what point in the process did that happen? What, what, when was the first time you felt that? And, and to go a step further in that, that first time you felt it, could you even wrap your brain around what no. was happening?
1: No. So the, so I had the right side done first and it, it made a lot of the things that I saw at war kind of just fade away a bit and didn't seem like I was in a gunfight all the time. And then the next day, is when I had it the left side done. And so that would have been like the Friday of the week. And I was like, this is incredible. Like I've never, it's been a really long time that I've had that I didn't have all these intrusive memories anymore. They're there and I'm not gonna like, it's in me. Like I went through these things, they're there, I have them, but it's like, it's a, it's like a butter knife now and not like a benchmate." right through my heart all the time it's there it's still who i am I, I didn't lose who trevor beeman is through this treatment um it just enhanced me to be who i am inside and rather these demons and intrusive memories just like pushing down on my brain all the time or is this like i was just lost all the fight in me to push it away anymore and then I, I just didn't have it
0: any other treatments that went in with this? I, I know you talked about some art therapy. You talked about. Uh,
1: it's but. EMDR, which is very painful to do. It's the eye movement reprocessing EMD, desensitization reprocessing treatment.
0: It's the red light, correct?
1: Yeah. So the, some people have like a red a bar that has a light. Some like follow your finger. And it's really difficult to do. That's what I did when I was in uh, the 90 day treatment facility. And so 90 days, 60 days in that process, you have, you take one trauma event that you've been through. And for me, I took the very first time that I can remember my stepfather abusing me and you like write about it you talk about it. And then they like, it's not like a trance, but it's kind of like a a dream like state, like you just kind of like bring these memories up. You are, you relive them in your brain and you can feel the things happening on your body at the same time. And it's, I don't want to say it's disgusting, but it's like, like it's like you got to, you have to commit everything in your life to doing it, to make it work. And so it's, it's it's this very similar to like the defrag process, but it's because you go through it every, every other day. And I did it like three days a week. And it's just like, you just go right back at it, right back at it, explaining everything that happened and just you're doing it over and over. And it just makes those memories so dull that it just, your body's able to process it. And for me, it's, I would be exhausted after, an hour and a half of like going through these events that I would sleep for like eight to 10 hours. And then this, that sleep process, reprocess those memories and like put them into the right place in my brain. But I would not recommend anybody doing like significant trauma work without like a lot of medical care and and a good facility that can take care of you because it, like I was very suicidal going through these things. And I was like, I was on a lot of different medications and a lot of migraines and a lot of, a lot of stress on your body that is really difficult to, to go through. And it's, it's extremely painful. Um, but it works if you can, if you can continue on through it.
0: So here's the last part of what we want to talk about with treatments, with you, with everything like that we talked about a rise in suicide we've talked about all of these different treatments that are going why do you think that well first off do you think that the va is doing everything it can to help who it's supposed to be helping number two to that is how long do you think until we will have all of these treatments for the general public to use because I mean, let's be honest about SGB and stuff. It could get very expensive to do it.
1: Uh, I think it's like $2,500 a side, right. which I don't think is expensive. For me to go to rehab for 60 days was
0: $100,000. True, true. In comparison, yes, it is. But I I want to point all of those things out because I, I've been reading about the Stellet for a long time since I've had some people on the show, and it, it seems amazing. I've never heard someone say a bad thing yet. But I would like people to understand, you know, what what is going to happen to it completely. So, yeah, do you think that the VA is doing the right thing?
1: Here's my take on it. When you okay. walk into the hospital, do you find the pain-curing clinic?
0: I mean, that's kind of hard to answer because, yes, that's what a hospital is supposed to do is 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 heal you.
1: Yeah, well... So here's the thing. You go in there and you find the pain management clinic. Okay. And so there's money into managing problems, disabilities, mental health. What happens if everyone gets better?
0: Yeah, the money dries up.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, I don't want to necessarily say it's that at a financial, big corporate level of pharmaceuticals and things like that. But it's not helping, uh, make it any easier for guys to get treatments and how much efficacy are we seeing guys being on these prolonged medications and how, like how many stories are we hearing about guys that were, went on medications And then now we're off them. It's like, are we putting people on medications for life? And that's what we're, so that's why I say like, are we just managing problems and we're not really fixing anything? And so the, the, and then the, you know, changing of terms and and having disorders or injuries, I think that is a different thing for insurance companies and billing things. affects the people to get treatments and and understanding that ketamine is just not an anesthetic that helps for like surgery or you know a traumatic event for like injury it also can be used as a mental health and and getting guys breakthroughs through the way that they feel about themselves and doing some you know concussion tbi work and then the sgb about just and feeling as if you're not just reliving everything of your life, and being able to just take a big breath and start learning some real coping mechanisms that you can feel and and use on a day to day basis without having to reach for pills or any other substances that get you through and cope with life, and it's it's f- totally f- uh, manageable by your own body and brain, I think by just learning some really good skills and by, but also getting treatment to remove a lot of those things that are within your body and your brain.
0: I want one more quote from you and I want you to explain how you live your life. Now you say life does not get any easier. We only manage how to do harder things better. I gave you that philosophy, man. And, and how do you (laughs) live that day to day to day?
1: So I think a lot of it comes from spearfishing. spear fishing. A lot of it comes from working out. A lot of it comes through doing hard things and, and seeing that life continues on. Right. So if you go to the gym every day, the stronger you get, the more weight you can pick up and the more weight you pick up, it's just that much harder. It doesn't get any easier at all to take the things that you can learn through experiences and learn from other people that you can, you can use those things to make your life seem easier and be able to cope with the struggles of what life has. And I really believe that if you can teach young kids and teach other people that they can manage their lives a lot better, even when hard times happen.
0: I want you to compare Trevor from 20 years ago to Trevor of today.
1: I was stuck in a bottle and I was using it to manage my life. And I wasn't fully present for what life really has and that has. And the, I say, like, I didn't see the green leaves on the trees. I was, I was just focused on everything in a very small area. And, and my aperture was not anywhere near to what the sun looks like and with clouds or, and sunsets and the way that the water work looks in the ocean. And in the sea and hear laughter of children and think that that's just phenomenal and, and having that joy and happiness in your life, 20 years ago, I would have never seen that.
0: You think it gets better from here or do you think you've talked? Oh, yeah. About it?
1: <laughs> um, I think there's more world to see. I think there's more people to meet and I think there's more stories to tell and experiences to have. And that I would like, I want to stay as as strong as possible for as long as possible so I can do as many things as I can. And like that's, and that's like kind of what the ketamine kind of sparked in my brain, was that this body is the only body I'll ever have, and that I must nourish it and take care of it and I must love it, because this is truly the only thing that matters in my life. And having all these other people are very important to me, but if I'm not healthy, nothing else will be. And so I just I need to take care of this organism that I have in my brain, and so that I can live as long as possible and do as many things as I can, because I th- I th- almost like I think I earned it in a way like I, and so let's not lose it because I don't want to take care of me.
0: You a hundred percent comfortable in your own skin now, or you think there's still room for growth? <sighs>
1: I'd say life goes on and there's always something to learn oh. um, Yeah, that I'm comfortable in my own skin, but I think there's always something to see. There's always, and that's where wisdom comes from, right? Is people who have gone through things that share them and that change your perspective on life and you having the ability to see what they, how they see it. And I think that that will happen the more you, Go to different communities and spend time with different people and different cultures. Their perspective on life should be changing the way that you feel about life. And I think that that growth is 100% necessary. Um, and then to be able to take your kids and show your kids that, I think that even grows them even more, which I think is super powerful and, and, and
0: important. Where can people find you? If they want to know more of your story, tell them about the Ted talk, where they can find it, where they can yeah. find you on social media, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So that Ted talk I did um, is on TEDx. Uh, you can just search my name. Uh, it should be easy to find there. I have Trevor and Trevor There's different things that are on both those websites. And then uh, Trevor A. Beeman on Instagram is pretty much the only thing I kind of follow. I do some stuff on, LinkedIn is just my name. I don't know. It's, um, an ongoing process. And you know, this is, uh, it's something that I, I truly want to get into in speaking and speaking and engaging people and that it's, you know, slowly coming into, a, you know, a dream that I had when I was in rehab to reach out to people. Cause I saw the impact of this, my story has on others. Um, and so this is, kind of been, you know, if you want to grow out of the army and be something, that's truly what I would, like have seen myself doing is just being able to change, you know, people's perspectives about themselves and that, you know, if it's me because of all the things I went through that can help you, then I think that's pretty powerful and it. And it's, um, I think it gives some people some hope because if I'm still living, then I think people can see it in their lives that they can too.
0: You have a fantastic story. I'm so happy that you came on here, that we've we've got to talk so much between the two of us just about, you know, life in general, how you approach it, because like I said, it's such a 180-degree difference from what you used to think. And I I cannot wait for more people to, to get into your story to hear more about you and to hear that there is help out there. Guys, don't forget that. If, if you're not feeling right, If you're seeing those ideations, make sure you talk to somebody. Make sure that you reach out. Trevor, you teach a lot that help is out there, but you have to be willing to ask for it. So, guys, help is out there. If you're not feeling right, make sure you check in with someone. This has been an amazing story. Now, everyone knows where they can find Trevor. Let's talk about where you can find me past this of course you can always find me on instagram at the dtd underscore podcast you can find me on facebook at the dtd podcast and you can find me on youtube where all these conversations they're in video form but your one-stop shop it's dtdpodcast.net audio video trevor's got his own page he's got pictures of him his family his combat his military life everything that's happening after we even have some spearfishing pictures in there and it'll have every link where you need to find trevor and where you can find him now that we know everywhere that we can talk about me and see me and trevor let's talk about my amazing sponsors and the guys that makes this show happen let's start with mac belts we all know that nothing stands up to wear and tear like a good leather belt if you're looking for the toughest leather belt on earth, you've come to the right place, Mac belts. They're handcrafted in the USA by veterans. We all know that the owner, Mac Alexander, retired Navy SEAL, he's putting these belts out. They're great for work. They're great for stylish wear. Anywhere you would need a belt, they're gonna do it for you. They're handcrafted, veg tan, full grain saddle leather, and they're dyed to a classic saddle tan. Guys, make sure you go by there, macbelts.com. They can even put any kind of logo that you want on there. Let's talk about coffee. Police Coffee is an officer-owned business, and it's dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped as soon as they're available to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and they're Specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee is some of the best you'll find. And let's talk about that. Their flavors, One Ranger, the newest flavored coffee you're sure to love. One Ranger is flavorful, medium-bodied coffee with a smooth and sweet pecan flavor. Pecan coffee is probably the best combination in the world. It's rich, sweet, nutty, buttery, and the flavor cuts right through coffee's natural acidity. Make sure that you go to policecoffee.com because the big thing about them, they give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. Guys, do not forget them. MacBelts.com, policecoffee.com. When you go to policecoffee.com, DJK10 will get your 10% off your order. Make sure you go to them. They make this show happen. Guys, this has been one of the greatest things that we've talked about true trauma truly coming through it coming back out on the other side that's going to be it for this show that's trevor i'm dj catch us on the next one we're out of here guys